my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Dorsey Arzner, the director of Dance Girl Dance, The Wild Party, Merrily We Go to Hell, Get Your Man, Christopher Strong. And you may be asking yourself, wait, I've never heard of any of these movies. Dorothy Arzner is the most prolific female filmmaker of the Hollywood studio era. And she wasn't the first woman director. Um, Alice Guy Blanchy was one of the first directors ever. She pretty much did the first narrative film. And there were other along the way. But like most women in careers dominated by men, and by that I mean every career, <laughs> if they had one screw up or one little thing that went wrong, they were excluded forever from that career. But in the late 20s, the 30s, and the early 40s, Dorothy Arsner worked consistently as a writer-director, often making let's call them women's pictures. Yeah. She got started in the industry when she became a script girl. And from there, she moved up to be a cutter and then an editor. She worked most famously on Blood and Sand, the 1922 version, which starred Rudolph Valentino. And from there, she went on and formed a relationship with James Cruz. And she uh, helped edit films like Ruggles of Red Gap from 1923 and The Covered Wagon. Dorothy Arster may not be a familiar name. I think she's becoming more reclaimed in recent years because there's a great appetite for female filmmakers and like the history of woman directors. Mm -hmm. Um, And in particular, her film Dance Girl Dance was rediscovered by the second wave feminists of the 1970s. And I've been hearing it just talked about more and more lately. Mm. In fact, here in Toronto, there was a screening of it at the Royal recently. Yeah, as part of the Ladies of Burlesque screenings. Dorothy Arzner has been kind of reclaimed as kind of a proto-feminist icon. Uh, That said, having kind of immersed myself in her films this week, her films are definitely historical artifacts. Yeah, I think that they're movies that are more interesting to talk about, like, what they are and what they represent more than their films that you would recommend to a friend and go, man, this movie's great. Because I don't think... Any of the ones that I saw were really great in the way that we expect films to be. Like, I read uh, this week, directed by Dorsey Arzner, which was a thesis kind of book by Judas Main that came out in the early 90s. And even in that, um, the author starts with, listen, these movies are not undiscovered classics, but I think it's important to talk about them and to talk about the person that made them Mm -hmm. and the system that she was able to work in at the time that she did. Yeah, the films are often interesting for what they say, what they're not allowed to say, what Mm -hmm. what they're hinting at. Um, and yeah, they're, they're just interesting as kind of like stepping stone films. Yeah. You know? And the fact that Arzner actually worked through multiple different eras of the Hollywood system mm-hmm. and that she was someone who was very consciously trying to be independent. She went from studio to suit studio in the later years of her career. And she actually worked with the same screenwriters mm-hmm. and would bring along the production team that she wanted because she had an idea of the film that she wanted to make, which was against the grain of what the studio system represented, which was that the director got the script, everything was already designed for them, and then they went off and made the movie. Many of the films are about the sexual double standard in society. Many of her films are about how women try to function in a so-called man's world. Many of her films deal with taboo topics like adultery and Mm. the transactional nature of sex. Oftentimes the films are sneakily subversive, 
Sometimes they don't quite say what we as a modern audience want them to say, Mm. but they're sort of hinting at it. And I think what's very important about Dorsey Arzner as well is that she was uh, known as a gay filmmaker. And by that, I mean that like she wasn't openly gay, like you could not be in the Hollywood studio system, but that like as far as her relationships went, everybody was very conscious that worked within the system, that she was in a long-term relationship with uh, Marion Morgan. And I think that like anybody who writes about her, they have to approach it from that angle and like what that meant. I think we should maybe start by talking about her most famous movie. Mm-hmm. Dance Girl Dance. Dance Girl Dance from 1940, a film that she made for RKO. This is the one that the second wave feminists rediscovered in the 70s. It stars uh, Maureen O'Hara and a young, feisty Lucille Ball as uh, small-time burlesque dancers. Sexpot Lucille Ball, finally on the big screen! <laughs> yeah, uh, they're, they're small-time dancers. Lucille Ball is uh, uh, somebody with a body and she knows how to use it and wants to advance her career in, uh, let's say, the burlesque world. Mm. As far as the Hayes Code would let burlesque go at this <laughs> point in time. Maureen O'Hara is a very serious ballerina who wants to do you know more artistic work lucille ball becomes a much bigger star and she gives maureen o'hara an opportunity to work with her on her big burlesque review on Mm -hmm. broadway but what maureen o'hara learns is she's actually a stooge who comes on halfway through so for the first act lucille ball comes out she strips she does sexy va va voom dancing then she goes out then maureen o'hara comes out doing a very serious Mm -hmm. square ballet act and the men in the audience boo her and hiss at her and abuse her and make fun of her until lucille ball comes back out and what the movie builds to is this climactic moment where maureen o'hara just turns on the audience and basically just rips into them go on laugh get your money's worth no one's going to hurt you i know you want me to tear my clothes off so you can look at your 50 cents worth 50 cents for the privilege of staring at a girl the way your wives won't let you what do you suppose we think of you up here with your silly smirks your mothers would be ashamed of we know it's the thing of the moment for the dress suits to come and laugh at us too we'd laugh right back at you only we're paid to let you sit there and roll your eyes and make your screamingly clever remarks what's it for So you can go home when the show's over, strut before your wives and sweethearts and play at being the stronger sex for a minute. I'm sure they see through you. I'm sure they see through you just like we do. That's a great speech. And it almost feels like it's directed to the audience. Yeah. And that speech is really the speech on which Dorothy Arzner's reputation is built, I think. Yeah. I mean, other than the fact that like she was a women filmmaker at a time that there was none that were Mm -hmm. working as much as she was. But this is a very powerful scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it's the scene that everyone talks about in relation to her. Yes. Um, Yeah. yeah. They kind of forget the rest of the movie, which is fine. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. And I mean, this is kind of the disappointment appointment with this week, you know, because mm-hmm. You know, there were none of the movies I watched this week that I really disliked or anything, but there was also a ceiling in terms of how much I liked them. Well, could it just be that it's movies that were not for you and me at this point in time? That's the question I guess I guess uh, we have to ask, because not only are these movies, you know, made by a woman mm-hmm. and made, I think, primarily for woman audiences, but also these movies are dated historical artifacts. And when you watch them, you have to realize as well mm-hmm. that, like... 
Arzner mostly worked in the kind of like fluffy rich people getting together genre <laughs> in the depression yeah. where like these movies were popular and yeah I've said this multiple times before I hate rich people especially <laughs> when I have to watch them on screen in the way that like Hollywood has kind of like molded them mm-hmm. and like these movies were kind of tough for me to engage with in that way especially that Arzner her men are simpering wimps jerks assholes but because this is the way stories were supposed to be told oftentimes they still get together with the woman at the end of the movie. I think where Arzner really intersects with my interests is in the pre-code era of her Mm -hmm. career. Uh, I mean, I know you and I both love pre-code Hollywood movies. Yeah. Uh, I watched one this week called Merrily We Go to Hell from 1932. Great title. Great title. And in fact, some newspapers actually refused to advertise that title. Really? Because Hell? Yeah, because Hell hell was in it. I remember when Hellboy came out and I was like, whoa, they could put Hell in a movie title? (laughs) Did you know, this is off topic, but did you know the South South Park movie, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, the MPAA originally rejected the title South Park, All Hell Breaks Loose. Because Hell's in the title. Because Hell was in the title. And so they replaced it with Bigger, Longer, Uncut, and the MPAA didn't realize there was a double entendre in (laughs) that also. The MPAA is garbage. (laughs) Anyway, Merrily We Go to Hell stars Frederick March as a drunken reporter and aspiring playwright who is put on the path to sobriety when he marries a good-hearted heiress played by (laughs) Sylvia Sidney. Meanwhile, he sells one of his plays, which is about to be staged on Broadway, way but the leading lady is his former girlfriend by adrienne allen and he relapses he starts up an affair with adrienne allen again and his wife sylvia sydney says to him in a memorable line if being a modern husband gives you privileges then being a modern wife gives me privileges so she starts up an affair with a young cary grant (laughs) (laughs) uh so The movie, it's an odd mix of comedy and heavy, heavy melodrama with a bit of a decadent, rich person, early depression, pre-code atmosphere. It has some interesting things to say, again, about the sexual double standards of the time. Also, the movie... Spoiler alert. There are going to be a lot of spoilers in this episode, by the way. Because because we have to talk about the endings of the movies. Yeah. What is often interesting or lacking about these films comes in the shocking plot twist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the ending of the movie, she gives birth to his uh, child, but the child dies after two hours. And the movie ends with what may or may not be a deathbed reconciliation. We don't know if she's going to survive, but they do reconcile, which surprised me a little bit because... Normally in a movie like this, it would just end with her dying. I mean, this is where when you start talking about Dorsey Arzner, like these finales, especially at their most toxic, which I mean, we'll watch a movie with one of them that's like, woof, we'll get to it, though, are weird when you consider what kind of person she was, because she was someone who was incredibly driven about what she wanted to do. There's an anecdote about how she got her job uh, directing movies, and that was because she was working as kind of like a, a title writer in the silent era, writing scripts and stuff like that, and she wanted to direct and the boss at Paramount at the time which was kind of considered a poverty row studio uh said no I'm sorry we can't give it to you and he didn't say because she was a woman but come on that's what he meant Mm -hmm. and she said all right I'm gonna go to another studio then and he's like no 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 wait don't you can't do that and she said listen I'm going and I'm leaving unless you give me like a movie in a couple of weeks that I can start directing right away and because she was so good at her job and I've kind of become part of that Paramount family they didn't want her to go they said no no okay fine you can direct a movie Mm -hmm. Showing that she only got the opportunities that she got because she forced them to happen. And if you look at photos of her as well, she is a woman 
woman that like when she was working on all these sets, she was actually dressed most often like the men, mm. like uh, in a way that has been described as like a very butch style. She would wear no makeup. She would uh, gel her hair back. And if you look at photos on sets of like movies that she edited, you can see that all the women are dressed in like uh, long dresses and Dorsey Arzner is just wearing like a shirt and just mm. pants and that she in that way became part of like the family but she wasn't still like one of the guys like she was always a woman mm. in a way that like was very evident in the movies that she went off and made let's talk a little bit about Christopher Strong from Ugh. 1933 this yep. is one that we both saw and I don't think we liked very much no this is one that its star Catherine Hepburn was very excited to make because for like the first time in a career she could work with a woman director mm -hmm. and supposedly they did not get along very mm -hmm. well to the point that Catherine Hepburn actually complained to uh, like the studio head that like Dorsey Arzner was ruining the film and that she was making decisions that she didn't agree with she actually thought that Arzner was actually too tough with the staff as well mm -hmm. and she really disliked uh, the screenwriter that worked on the film because she thought she was too hoity-toity and like rich Catherine Hepburn in this movie basically plays Amelia Earhart mm -hmm. uh, you know a uh feisty strong independent famous aviator who falls in love with christopher strong a who, married man uh, a married man who's married to billy burke who you might know as uh, glinda the good witch from the wizard of oz <laughs> oh and and by the way christopher strong is played by colin clive who you might know as dr frankenstein mm -hmm. so there's an affair happening there and billy burke knows that it's happening but also Colin Clive and Billy Burke have a daughter who is in love with a married man. This married man ends up divorcing his wife, but finds out, uh-oh, the daughter spent the night with another man. Yes. And so she's ruined in his eyes. However, eventually... They get back together. Yeah, he comes to see past this and they come back together. Two people who do not get together are Catherine Hepburn and Colin Clive, because Catherine Hepburn realizes, well, she's destroying Colin Clive's marriage, so what should I do? I should kill myself. I should kill myself. I should get up into a plane and uh, just crash the plane. Yes. Now, this is a problem to any modern audience watching it, because what you want to happen is she to realize, oh, the simpering little man who the film gives no indication is good in any way. <laughs> I should just toss him aside and continue on with my life because she has passion. She has dreams. She has stuff that she wants to do and that she's good at. But because she can't get this man's love, she decides to kill herself. Well, I mean, it's unfortunate because it's it's pre-code Hollywood, but even in pre-code Hollywood, there were still rules that people had to follow. And we forgot to mention here that uh, Catherine Hepburn is also pregnant with Christopher Strong's son. Oh, yes. Or daughter or whatever. Her so, child child so i this is a pretty saucy movie mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it, there's an amazing scene uh where she goes to colin clive's house for the night and then it cuts to the bed stand and mm -hmm. you see Catherine hepburn's hand reach out to the alarm clock and she says in sort of a breathy voice it's late <laughs> you know? so like all the stuff is there and a lot of dorsey arzner's films do deal with this idea of like adultery or like breaking these moral codes and what it means mm -hmm. to break them it's just unfortunate that to our modern eyes at the end it's usually like the person making like a sacrifice that she did not have to do to stay by her man. I mean, Christopher Strong has interesting things in it, like mm -hmm. the relationship between the daughter and her fiance. Yes, who it, then demonize the Catherine Hepburn character and say, we saw 
what you did. Yeah. And that like, we're going to tell our father. And, and, he, then and he also says like, you know, we don't pretend to be saints unlike you. you yes. Know? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Just the idea that Catherine Hepburn like wants to do stuff makes her a saint of some kind. But I mean, I, I think you can sense like this is a movie a little bit at war with itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the movie also feels a little long at 78 minutes. It's yeah. a bit repetitive. Uh, I did like Catherine Hepburn's uh, skin tight silver lame <laughs> outfit. Looking like uh, she'd be in some kind of sci-fi movie uh, with like little antennas on her head. When she put it on, I thought, oh, there must be like a costume party scene coming up. <laughs> nope. It's <laughs> just the fashion of the time. Incredible. <laughs> uh, I mean, I watched a few of Dorsey Arzner's other films as well, like Craig's Wife, which is a film that came out in 36, which is about the main character played by Rosalind Russell, who is in a loveless marriage with a very rich man. And the movie essentially is the journey of the man realizing, well, this woman doesn't actually love me. She just wants me because it allows her to get the money to do whatever she wants. And this film presents uh, Craig's wife, if you will, as a controlling kind of demeaning person who talks down to her help, like the maids and stuff like that. And like, it wants you at the end to kind of be on Craig's side as he turns up against her. Mm -hmm. Even though the film starts with Russell saying to another woman, I only married because it was a form of emancipation. It allowed me to achieve my dreams in a way that I could never do because I don't have any money. And that's what I'm using the man to do. And that's, I think, really interesting. I think that that's really like something to discover. But the problem with the film is... As far as its story goes, it's about how this person is evil and how you want to see her fail because all the decisions she's made, she will end up alone. This is the problem like with with Dorothy Arzner as kind of a proto-feminist figure is because she works best as a proto-feminist figure in like individual moments in Mm -hmm. the movies. Uh, And I mean, honestly, you can't really blame her for not like being... Uh, fitting perfectly a rubric of like a 1970s era second wave feminist yes i know yeah like it's impossible the concept of feminism didn't didn't exist Mm -hmm. at the time and the fact that she was still going forward and did want to be an independent Mm -hmm. she actually left some of the big studios because she didn't want to have to do the projects that they were giving her Mm -hmm. and that she wanted to go on and do her own stuff like she made a movie with uh joan crawford the bride wore red in mgm which we talked about um last episode and it was so difficult for her because it was like a studio-driven project. And she didn't have the control that she wanted. And the fact that Louis uh, B. Mayer hated her, mm. probably because she was a woman who wanted to do mm. her own thing, made her life very difficult. And um, it's kind of linked to the fact that many people believe that her experience at MGM kind of tanked her career. Because even Dance Girl Dance was Dorsey Arzner taking over for another director who had to leave the project. Mm. So it wasn't even something that she created herself. Uh, did you watch any of her silent films? I did. I actually watched uh, The Wild Party, um, the Clara Bow film. And I know you watched another Clara Bow film. Yeah, I watched Get Your Man. And how was that one? Uh, it was okay. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a breezy one hour because mm-hmm. I think something like 20 minutes of it had been lost, actually. But it has recently been restored. Oh, really? I didn't see the restored version. I yeah. saw a bad public domain version. But it stars uh, Clara Bow as a, a woman in Paris, uh, a visitor to Paris who falls in love with a nobleman played by Charles Buddy Rogers. <laughs> I just did air quotes <laughs> yeah. over Buddy. Um, he's a nobleman who has been betrothed to a woman early in his childhood. So it's uh, an arranged marriage comedy, my favorite genre. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and uh, she realizes that she's not going to sit by and uh, let this happen. She's going to get her man by having the fiancé's father fall in love with her. Yeah. But then 
Charles' buddy Roger's father also falls in love with her. Shenanigans, complications ensue. It's a very lighthearted uh, comedy that nevertheless uh, has plenty to say about, you know, how uh, gender and marriage was perceived at the time. I mean, all of Dorsey Arzner's films are saying that kind of stuff. This idea that, like... Men can get drunk and they can be crazy. And that's fine. They're just being men. But if women do that, whoa, like they are exiles and they cannot work in polite society. Like the Clara Bow film I watched, The Wild Party, um, a film that Dorsey Arzner is famous for inventing the boom pole on because sound was just coming into uh, effect. And the way they would do it was putting microphones around the set. But Clara Bow hated this. So Dorsey Arzner engineered a long fishing pole with some microphone on the end of it that someone could then hold and follow the action with. Mm. Unfortunately, Dorsey Arzner did not patent that idea, and it was actually patented like years later by somebody else. So oh. she got no credit for that or money, uh, most importantly. But so the wild party is about Clara Bow, who's at an all women's college, and that she's like a fun party girl who's like independent, likes to do what she likes to do. And then she falls in love with uh, one of her teachers, who is a prig and a stick in the mud, who believes that Clara Bow could just be so much better if she just stopped her partying ways. <laughs> and eventually she does. And he still acts like a jackass, so she goes off on her own way. But then when he's shot, she feels more sympathy for him again, and they get involved. And then the film is actually kind of interesting in the way that it ends, unlike most of the Dorsey Arzner films that I saw, in that Clara Bow actually takes a bullet for a friend who was involved in an affair. Clara Bow actually says, oh, it was me that did it. Because by doing that, she allows her friend to continue with her scholarship and to be allowed to go do more. And because of that, Clara Bow has to leave... uh, university and college. She can't do it anymore. And her a beau, who's a teacher, actually leaves college as well. Mm. So it's kind of like both of the people sacrificing stuff for the love that they have, which is a great finale, even though that up until then, it's the guy being like, you can be so much more if you just stopped all this fun <laughs> stuff than being independent and drinking. Sounds interesting. I mean, you know, uh, even though there was a limit to how much I loved these movies, I am like interested in exploring a little bit more from her career Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the movies often seem a little bit at war with themselves. Well, I think that's the most interesting part about Dorsey Arzner is that like these scenes and these moments say a lot about who she was, even though that they have to be packaged within this Hollywood product Mm -hmm. that I think that was context. The movies can like mean a lot more than they would on just a first go around. And I mean, if you want to discover her career, even though we've been saying that she is one of the like longest running uh, women filmmakers in early Hollywood, it ended dead in 1943, where um, in the middle of shooting a war picture, First Comes Courage, she actually got pneumonia and had to step down and somebody Mm -hmm. else had to come and do the final weeks of the film. And after that, she went um, during World War II and she shot um, kind of instructional videos for women in the army. And after that, she kind of decided, listen... I just don't want to do this anymore. Like, I've done my Hollywood filmmaking career. And she went on and did more stuff. She uh, did a radio show. She taught at UCLA for four years. And she taught people like Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, and he said that it was very important for him. And I believe that uh, at Paramount, they actually named a Dorsey Arzner building after her. And she lived long enough to see her name kind of come back into prominence. Yeah, that people were like writing about her. She was interviewed by the BFI when they did a retrospective about her films. Even though that her films, even at this point, like Criterion's not putting them out. There's no special editions or anything. Mm -hmm. Like one of the movies that I tried to watch, Working Girls, the copy that I was able to get my hands on is the worst like movie that I've seen 
visually ever like available now where it's like everything's blown out the sound is awful and that's the only available copy that people can watch now i think this will change i've been hearing more about dorothy arsner lately and mm-hmm. i feel like there will be more restorations and more companies like criterion will start to investigate this and that i do think that like when we're able to properly follow her career from beginning to end you will see like an evolution and, and i think that'll be really important but as it stands now like the movies when we watch them we go ah yeah these are fine but again, like maybe it doesn't speak to us like it would speak yeah. to an audience in the era that they were I, I do recommend Dance Girl Dance, though. I actually uh, recommend yeah. The Wild Party. I yeah. think that it's really good, especially Cl- Clara Bow, who mm-hmm. is like such a charismatic figure. I mean, mm-hmm. she was the it girl. Yes. So to see her working with someone like Dorsey Arzner is really important. Mm-hmm. So, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters this week, and you can send them, as per usual, to importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first one is from Sinjin, and it goes, Hi, I'm a huge fan of your show and proud to support through the Patreon. Thank you. Could you two talk about current film criticism? I'd love to hear about any writers you particularly enjoy. Best, Sinjin. Well, my favorite definitely has to be Jonathan Rosenbaum's Naked People who show up on Twitter, and you're like, Whoa, oh my God, Jonathan, what are you doing? Yeah, I love, uh, you know, looking up Jonathan Rosenbaum's review of Eyes Wide Shut and then just seeing he's loaded it with pictures of Nicole Kidman's ass. (laughs) Yep. It's like, why? Uh, But as far as like... Jonathan Rosenbaum is a man of Falstaffian appetites. (laughs) Wine, women, and song. And I don't know if Jonathan Rosenbaum is like a current critic other than like the articles that he writes for uh, Cinemascope, the DVD articles that me and Will flip to first thing when we get the magazine. I think those articles, he writes those only for us. (laughs) Yeah. You know? (laughs) The stream of consciousness kind of rambling things about DVDs that are only available in France. Yeah, the Region 2 Blu-ray of, I don't know, uh, Godard's Hail Mary. Or something yeah, like exactly. That. <laughs> How about you, Will? Who are you reading right now? Oh boy! I, I mean, the when I pick up a, a sight and sound or a film comment, uh, I often uh, first look for. I like Nick Pinkerton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like friend of the podcast Violet Luca a lot. You know, I always enjoy Tony Rains, uh, who has I been, actually really like Tony Rains he, as well. He's been writing about Asian film for a long time, and you know, along with maybe David Boardwell and a couple others, he's probably the best. I'm always shocked that, I mean, I don't know Tony Raines. I've never seen a picture of him, but I'm like, he's still alive? Yeah. (laughs) Because it feels like he's been writing about this forever, doing some of the earliest commentary track on, like, Asian DVD releases. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's still doing it uh, warms my heart with joy. Yeah. Uh, I like, uh, I mean, Reverse Shot is probably the the web-based Mm-hmm. Uh, film criticism website I check the most um, and you know I also uh, like in terms of more like genre stuff I enjoy Stephen Thrower's books a lot oh I love Stephen Thrower especially as like a historian because he's a guy that like sometimes he'll talk so passionately about a movie that I get like Jonathan Rosenbaumitis where I go like whoa man this sounds great I'm gonna see this and then I watch it and I'm like huh what I don't see it it's become a fun ritual for me where you know if uh, a new if a Jess Franco movie comes out on Blue Oh, he's so good at those. Every Blu-ray will always have, yeah, an interview with Stephen Thrower where he explains where this fits into Franco's career. And oftentimes the interview will go for 25 minutes because Mm -hmm. there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. And I think that that is the kind of criticism that I like the most is someone who's very passionate about what they're talking about. And even if I don't agree with everything they say, the way that they kind of present it and 
let you know that this is their opinion and how it makes them feel. That's what I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's tough for me to think of anybody like one. Jacob Knight is a guy that I really enjoy reading on Birth Movies Death. Um, and But mostly his reviews, I see them on like Letterboxd and stuff like that. That is the place these days that I will look and like, if somebody likes a movie and I agree with that person, I'll go, ooh, well, I've never heard of this movie before. You know, the sick thing is like, uh, th this era has melted my brain to such an extent that I find myself like, hate reading a lot of critics very independently. No, I, I do not do that. I know you don't. Uh, so this is a big difference between you and me. So yeah. it's like, you know, Lights, Camera, Jackson will have a review and it's like, oh, He only yes, exists because please. of you and your yeah. brethren. Or, um, you know, Sally Jane Black. I don't on, even know on, who that is. Letterboxd is, you know, uh, she's like kind of the wokest of woke critics, but she's also a tanky. What's a tanky? A tanky is somebody who... Um, uh, is an apologist for Joseph Stalin and believes that uh, <laughs> what like, Stalin did no wrong and believes that uh, communist China really is like a good. That's an insane state. opinion. Guess what, Justin? There's a whole contingent of these crazy people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. So ignorance is bliss for me. <laughs> yeah. Or like you know, there are certain you know far right critics mm -hmm. who you know I find myself compulsively checking. I think you know I think it's because because you like to challenge yourself, right? Well, you know on. A website like Rotten Tomatoes, you'll notice that there's so much uniformity of opinion these mm -hmm. days. Like, it used to be that if a movie got 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, that seemed like kind of a big deal, like 15 years ago. But now, every movie gets 96% because all the critics have the same point of view. So, I want to, like... I want to make myself hurt by... Yeah, but I think the problem with that, in my eyes, and this is only And you're my probably opinion, right. <laughs> is that these people are insane. So, yes. it's not like they're... <laughs> vocalizing an opinion that you can go, I could see why you would react to it that way. Mm -hmm. Because like the this article that I read or this review, you can back it up. As opposed to like most of these people, you're like, what are you talking no, about? You're right. I, listen, I like a good like- uh, Armin White-ish. Well, not Armin White. I think he's gotten pretty bad lately. Too popular. <laughs> Too popular. But no, I like a good critic who, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the word contrarian, but mm -hmm. I like a critic who can- uh, take a more unpopular you know jonathan rosenbaum for example yeah is, very is, is contrarian it, yeah, about some stuff but i mean he has a very consistent worldview mm -hmm. um and it's interesting to see something from that worldview and i think that's a little bit important for me which is yeah. that like this consistency of worldview like they can change their mind about stuff like they can go oh i hated this but now i like it because i watched it again yeah. but that it's not like oh i love this and i hate this and you're like, but wait, they're both the same. And you're like, well, this one is unpopular, so I love it. <laughs> and this one is popular, so I hate it. That's the thing that like drives me nuts the most. Where you can pinpoint someone's reaction based on public opinion. That's what I'm like. <laughs> so oh. that, that, I mean, that's Armand White. Yeah, 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 I mean, like that I hate. And that's the stuff that I dislike the most. I mean, like Armand White's worldview, if, if he has one, is that like he's angry at the world. Yes, and that he just wants to fight against it. Yeah, and so if something is, if something in this degraded society is popular, that means it must by definition be bad or if something is embraced by this degraded critical class it must be bad mm -hmm. which you know i can sympathize with that point of view to an extent although it's also a, a rather the way that he practices it it's rather nihilistic i'm trying to think of like critics could you, even to mention one that i enjoy and i think that the ones that 
kind of excite me the most are ones that don't really talk about new films, but talk about old films or discovering old films and kind mm. of bringing them to my attention. That's what I love the most. Like someone like the guys who write like Bleeding Skull and stuff like that. Mm. Like that I love because it's this archival like digging into these giant piles of garbage to get stuff. Now, you're going to have reactions where you go, what, this is still garbage. <laughs> but the fact that they go and do this stuff, that's what I find like really exciting. And it's like, I have some letterbox people that I can't think off the top of my head that when they review something, I'm like, ooh, whoa, I haven't heard of this before. <laughs> that like, I will go and click and see what they said because that's exciting to me. Like someone even like Matt Lynch, who you see on every letterbox review. I don't know how he got on the top there, but he's a um, video clerk at uh, Scarecrow Video <laughs> in Seattle. And like his opinions, like I don't always agree with him, but I think they're formulated in a way that I'm like, oh, that's interesting and will actually get me excited or unexcited about something. There are some letterbox reviewers who I just think are so annoying. Like, yeah, I don't follow them. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you see them all the time on, I can, the, on the top. You, top I block reviews. them. Like you can block oh, people. That's what I'm going to do sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, there were some people on letterbox yeah. that I kept seeing the reviews pop up and I'm like, no, I don't want to see. Like Sally Jane Black is at least funny. Really? You know? Okay. But, but, well, I mean, not intentionally. No, I like she's at least funny. But some of these, some of these, like I love how I've white, never seen that person. Some of these white bread lamos, these <laughs> you know, dorky bespectacled uh, who needs to have an opinion that will make you stand up and go, yeah. "Whoa, that's crazy!" And I will pay attention. Yeah, or they're just like kind of nerdy guys like us. They like us, and, yeah, and so like, they're boring to me. Yeah, normcore. <laughs> yeah, opinions. Yeah, uh, I mean, someone like Robin Bougie, though. I love reading. Oh, his I stuff. love Robin Bougie. Yeah, and yeah. like Cinema Sewer, and I think that not only is he approaching topics that a lot of them I'm very familiar with but doing it in an interesting way because he does these zines that they're basically all hand illustrated I mean a lot of people love the like video essays uh I know Scout Tafoya does some really good video mm -hmm. essays I I mean video essays are often badly done Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever seen any of Kentucker Oddly's like parody video essays? Yes, he did one on um... uh, like uh, Tim Burton's powder. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or or, uh, or yeah, like the, the use of uh, emotion in Liar Liar or something like that. I mean, because the thing about the video essay is that you have to sound serious about what you're talking about. And, and, and also, when it's like a yeah. wacky topic. And it, it, it can also be a bit of a cheat because like you've, you've got the movie to, to rely, to fall back on. Mm -hmm. It's like people can be responding to just a great movie clip rather yeah. than the point you're making. So I hope that at the end of this long discussion about critics, you're going to go out and buy a cinema sewer book yeah. and uh, don't read it around a uh, polite company. Cause it is filled with mm. naked ladies and men mm. just, images and i remember reading one in high school and cracking it open and going whoa yeah i remember i think in grade 12 i bought the first cinema sewer uh, anthology book yeah. and i mean now i'm i'm a jaded hardcore guy uh you know i i'm rough and tough and can take anything but back then the, like you know the hairs on the back of my neck really <laughs> i remember <laughs> really that the people around me just looked as when i opened it up and like looked at what i was reading and they were like what the heck and yeah I'm, oh it's movies it's not uh, what yeah. you think it is yeah all right well, thank you again very much for the letter. And moving on, we have one from Charlie Yao, and it goes, Hello, Most Important Cinema Club. Ooh, I like that the name. Most Important Cinema Club. <laughs> Wait, is there some other one out there? Like Most Important Cinema Club International. Ugh. I found your podcast through Michael and Us. 
and I am a big fan. Much more than Michael and us. I added that part. I read between the lines. (laughs) (laughs) I'm eagerly waiting for the podcast Expanded Universe to have your Avengers with Will Sloan, Justin DeClue, Luke Savage, Matthew Kumar uniting in the movie podcast extravaganza of the summer. It would be interesting to see the uh, matter of Luke Savage meet the antimatter of Justin (laughs) DeClue on on an Avengers movie. (laughs) And what about like uh, Matthew (laughs) Kumar as well? Who would be the E? Like who would go evil in this scenario? You know, you probably don't want to say because you don't want to hurt any feelings of the people that are not here. No, I, I actually am not sure. <laughs> really? Frankly, I don't know if the chemistry would work with the four of us talking. No, about I don't think so. Yeah. I think that um, a certain co-host I have would be angry at some other co-host <laughs> that we would bring on, and that he, because as you may have heard, this certain co-host, which I will not name, he like doesn't suffer fools he, gladly. He's a, he's a, you know, hot-tempered guy, but then so is the other co-host, frankly. <laughs> They're just yelling they at each not, other. They, yeah, they may not get along. <laughs> anyway, the letter continues, one of the themes of the podcast is how great Hong Kong cinema is, particularly that of the 80s and 90s period. It makes me wonder what your thoughts are on the flowering of mainland cinema of around that same time, The Blue Kite, Pharaoh My Concubine, and Raise the Red Lantern, which came out the same year as Once Upon a Time in China. Do you see any meaningful connection between the two cinemas? or do you think they should be treated as wholly different? Thanks and keep up the good work, Charlie. So mainland Chinese cinema is something I'm actually not that familiar with. Like, it's not um, a era of cinema that I've, like, went and explored after Hong Kong cinema because I do think they're distinctly different. They are very different. I mean, when I was a teenager and kind of getting into Hong Kong cinema, I watched a lot of those great mainland films because I... I didn't quite distinguish between the Mm -hmm. two of them yet. I didn't quite understand there was a difference between Hong Kong and mainland cinema, although I eventually figured it out, of Mm -hmm. course. Uh, I mean, you're like, where's the martial arts? Well, I mean, I love uh, the early Zhang Yimou movies Mm -hmm. and the early uh, Chen Kaige films. And what's funny Uh, about them is they actually just evolved into Hong Kong filmmakers. Because if you look at Chen Kei making like The Promise, which is like a big, broad martial arts epic, or uh, Zhang Yimou, yeah, Yeah, making making Hero. hero. And that's basically what it feels like all he's been making since then. His next one is another big wuxia picture. But also like the movies that we love from mainland China in that era were not the movies that were really being uh, fostered by the official film culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but you know, a lot of Zhang Yimou's movies early on were banned in the mainland, uh, but were very successful on the festival circuit around the world. And, you know, as uh, the official film culture in China, the top-down film culture has gotten more uh, rigid, you know, it's been heartbreaking for a lot of us who used to like these filmmakers, you know, to watch somebody like Zhang Yimou basically become a propaganda filmmaker. And it's heartbreaking to watch the mainland, you know, this this sanitized... This blob kind of just take over all these Hong Kong filmmakers. Yeah. Absorb them, really. Yeah. I mean, I guess one way that the, the two industries are similar as they, they are both Chinese industries. But I don't think you know. there was that much bleed through because we've talked about before. And again, we're not experts on this, but Hong Kong didn't have that much penetration in the mainland Chinese landscape. No, but I mean, you know, Hong Kong films were dealing with China. Yes. Like, but it, as a topic. Our favorite ones from the 80s and 90s were dealing specifically with the threat of China 
taking over Hong Kong yeah. in 97. Like, True Hark's filmography, mm-hmm. like, from the beginning up until, like, the uh, early 2000s mm-hmm. is all about the threat of mm-hmm. China and what it's going to mean about changing the landscape of Hong Kong. Yeah. Until he just, you know, just became a mainland blockbuster filmmaker. And I mean, the mainland movies that I like now are uh, the ones by, like, Zha Zhangke, mm-hmm. which again are... He's kind of sold out a little bit lately. A little bit. A little. I mean, I'm interested in seeing how his career develops, mm-hmm. but I mean, he's still somebody who... Uh, is not exactly making propaganda films. Mm-hmm. I mean, he takes himself seriously as a Chinese filmmaker. Yeah. But he sh- he's showing something of the real China. I think that it would be interesting to actually do an episode on like a mainland Chinese filmmaker because we'd be talking about kind of an era of Chinese film that me and you, mm-hmm. we don't explore that much yeah, I, and what that means. Yeah, and I mean, it would also, I think, be interesting to maybe explore the history of mainland Chinese cinema, which has not been very proud. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been long periods of inactivity in the Chinese film industry, you know, like during Mao's reign, there were long periods when people just didn't make films in mainland China, or what films were made were historical propaganda films, you know, yeah. the taking of Tiger Mountain, or that sort of thing. <laughs> and not the new Troy Hark one no, that came not, out a few no, years ago. the old one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, hopefully that answered your question. And uh, moving on, we have one last letter, and it goes, do kids still love Looney Tunes? And uh, this letter is from Charlie. No last name is given. He goes, In your Looney Tunes podcast, you briefly ask whether or not kids enjoy old cartoons. They fucking love them. I am a full-time kindergarten teacher in Tokyo. Each lunchtime, if the children finish their food, they are allowed to have free play or watch videos with me. Since I can no longer stand watching the same episodes of Curious George over and over, (laughs) I decided that the class will only be watching things that I also enjoy. So far, the only thing I found that resonates with both of them in the whole class are Looney Tunes and out-of-context Godzilla fights on YouTube. <laughs> Looney Tunes is a particular hit, with Bugs Bunny being a class favorite. I've tried to show them early Mickey shorts, but while they love the character, they quickly get bored of the cartoons. That's because Mickey shorts are boring. <laughs> I was surprised to find out that the original King Kong plays better than any of the modern versions, but only the parts where he fights dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> Do you have any suggestions of things that might play well with kids who have a pretty good but still limited grasp of English? Thanks for all your hard work. Love of the podcast charlie uh that's interesting that they love the original king kong but not the like cgi versions because they respond to like stop motion in a way that they don't to computer animation well if they like the original king kong they might like the silent version of the lost world yeah that tons of monsters in it uh they would probably Mm -hmm. like the fight scenes from son of kong Mm -hmm. which have a lot of monsters in them i'm trying to think of like what are the things that i liked as a kid Mm -hmm. and it wasn't so much a matter of liking it it was just a matter that a lot of it It was there yeah so you know like the Flintstones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would you we're recommend talking that about to a kid? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend the Flintstones. I would maybe recommend something like uh, Will Sloan's favorite, Adams West Batman. Sure. That's very colorful, but it may be a little bit too slow paced for kids mm. of this day and age where they can go on the internet and watch whatever they want. I think that Three Stooges would probably hold up with them. Not all, but some. But some, some of, the of them, like stuff. some of the short stuff because it's just slapstick. Mm-hmm. And um, even kids who like English is not their first language, like they respond to it because all you have to do is like, why I yada. Yeah. But stick to Curly, I would say. Yeah, uh, don't go into the Shemp era. Right. Or um, what's the one that goes like, that hurt! Oh, J- Joe Besser. <laughs> yeah, or Curly Joe. Um, hey, buddy boy! <laughs> yeah, stay away from that as far as possible. I mean, to pick an obvious one,
one because you said Japan, like Ultraman, the 30 minute or like 21 minute TV show that you can buy on like really cheap DVDs are filled with monster action and are very short. So I think kids will respond to that, especially if they respond to something like the original King Kong, because mm-hmm. like guys in suits fighting is always more fun than like animated CGI people fighting. I mentioned on the Looney Tunes episode how much I enjoy Tex Avery, mm-hmm. who started as a Looney Tunes director and then he made cartoons for MGM. Uh, I could rattle off the names of some Tex Avery cartoons that I know kids would still like. King Size Canary, The Northwest Town Police. Mm-hmm. Search Tex Avery cartoons. And like, the again, the thing is that when we were kids, most of the stuff we watched was garbage. Yeah. So it's difficult to like recommend something. And it's the same with kids today too, by the way. Yeah, it's the same with every generation. Every generation gets its own garbage and it frustrates me because kids today should watch the same garbage that I watched when no, I was No, don't do it to They them. should be forced to watch Camp Caribou. Well, Camp uh, Caribou? I don't even know what Prairie that. Emporium. Aren't these all Canadian TV shows? Exactly. And they should uh, be forced to watch them like I did. Uh, the Big Comfy Couch. Uh, they should not move past to any other new culture. <laughs> I remember I would watch Tintin all the time on uh, uh, TV. Hated Tintin. Because he's boring, right? Yeah, he's boring. <laughs> but I don't know. I also hated kids. Rupert the Bear. Why did you hate Rupert the Bear? Boring. And, and just kind of wimpy, you know? Like <laughs> You want like a manly bear yeah give me popeye give me a guy with muscles you know popeye would probably play very well with kids yeah possibly colorful very animated very violent that's what yeah. kids like yeah all right well thank you everybody for your letters as per usual you can send them to us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week on our patreon episode we uh went a little bit theoretical it's like uh school is in session at the important cinema club have you ever heard somebody say What I'm really looking for in a movie is a good story. We unpack what that means. And we talk about some of our favorite films. We talk about, like, do they have good stories? Do they not have good stories? What is our opinion? Do me and Will need stories for our movies? Well, you'll have to listen to it to find out. And maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you won't. (laughs) You won't know unless you uh, give $5 a month. Uh, to get four exclusive episodes of the Important Cinema Club podcast. And I haven't mentioned this in many episodes, but we're pushing this summer to get 150 Patreon subscribers because we're going to do a commentary after that. And it's going to be great. It's going to be a movie that you'll be able to watch at home and you can just sync up the commentary with. And uh, it's a topic that you're going to want to hear us talk about because... We love it. I'm not going to say we didn't talk about it because that would be a lie. <laughs> yeah. It has come up on the podcast before. And I'd just like to thank our newest Patreon subscribers, Gavin Mead, Stuart Shepard, Tim Vermeulen, Yan Graff, Trey McKinley, and Guy Nelson. Thank you very much for going to patreon.com slash important cinema club podcast and becoming a Patreon subscriber. Uh, I and Will really appreciate it. So next week, we're back in our comfort zone uh, with a, speaking of Hong Kong with a filmmaker by the name of Godfrey Ho. Filmmaker? Is he, he's so much more. He, he makes films <laughs> out, out of, of other films. Yeah. So uh, let me try to explain the concept of Godfrey Ho for people who may not know him. Ninjas. Ninjas. Uh, he's made over 100 films, half of which have the word ninja in the title. <sighs> Three quarters, probably. I looked at, like, the list of movies. I could not believe how many have ninja in the title. Ninja Thunderbolt, Ninja Scorpion, Ninja Terminator. Mostly, as a filmmaker, he worked with producer Joseph Lai, and he would uh, take unfinished films 
uh, films that for some reason or another people wouldn't weren't able to get completion funds for and uh, he would film new scenes involving ninjas and just graft those scenes onto this film whatever it was and it could be you know a comedy it could be a drama it could be anything <laughs> and- so we're gonna talk about that and I the thing I love the most about him is that he's often co- compared to someone like Roger Corman and the fact is that like Godfrey Ho didn't even have like the acumen of Corman did because like all he did was ninjas like this worked for him and he just drove it into the ground over decades although there are some other kinds of movies he did yeah he did some um girls with guns films like lethal panther there is a youtube clip that you may have seen called like world's worst fight scene do you know the one i'm talking about it's from undefeatable yep. with cynthia rothrock a film i've never seen maybe, and, maybe uh, we're gonna week? watch it for next yeah? week okay. yeah so so what are we watching ninja terminator undefeatable okay i already made a list of seven that i want to watch i think like i want to watch u.s Catman. yeah uh, cat Man. Yeah, uh, I think I have Thundering Mantis in there. He did like he a did gi- some kung fu stuff, yeah. And he did like a a giant monster movie, which is like an anomaly oh, in his career about a giant snake. I think it's like Thunder the Snake. He loved the word Thunder as well. One that um, he's credited with directing is a uh, Robo Vampire. I've seen that one. Yeah, Actually, I've seen it too. In fact, I think we were at the same screening back in the day uh, when I worked at a video store. I made a DVD edition of Robo Vampire with the other two movies that he edited in that tinfoil Robocop into. Yeah. And that I actually put it on the shelves of the video store with commentary with me and my friends. Oh, It's man. gone. Like, I don't have a copy. Oh, no. I have the case and I don't have the disc. What a tragedy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think maybe two or three people picked it up, so hopefully they made copies and they listened to it. Okay, that's a big preview of next week. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're talking about it. But we're going to talk a lot, I think. So <laughs> tune in next week. My name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. You know... Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. And uh, honest and popular don't go hand in hand. I don't know if you say that you can play the accordion, you won't be invited to join a rock and roll band. (laughs) On an early episode of this podcast, we discussed the filmmaker Elaine May. And I don't remember anything I said. Not well, I remember one thing we said. We said that we didn't much like the movie Ishtar. Yeah, uh, I think I enjoyed it more than you did. Uh, I love the first 30 minutes. That's what everyone says. The first 30 minutes are great. So I just saw Ishtar again. Uh, This was my third viewing in my lifetime (laughs) of it. I think we're equal now then. Three? Oh, maybe I've seen it four times. Uh, I saw it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox as part of their uh, Elaine May retrospective curated by Alicia Fletcher. And uh, this screening was introduced by uh, my friend Jesse Hawken. Mm -hmm. And who had previously given us Year of the Dragon on 70 millimeter. (laughs) That was an amazing night. (laughs) And I have to say, after that screening, I think I like Ishtar now. (gasps) What? You pulled a haywire? You've seen it enough time that you got Stockholm Syndrome? You know, maybe. Maybe my expectations are were just in the right spot at this time. But this time I really enjoyed Ishtar. I remember us making like a blood pact when we did that episode that we're like, we're not going to watch it for another 15 years. Well, I think you said like, I've seen it enough, but I'm glad because you knew if you watch it one more time, you become a convert. The first 20 minutes or, or or 20 or 30 minutes where they're in New York and they're struggling songwriters. So funny. So funny. <laughs> and on this viewing, those first 20 minutes give you such goodwill that you then carry for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's plenty of funny stuff in the rest of the movie when they're in Ishtar. Charles Grodin is very funny. Charles Grodin's very funny. And, you know, Warren Beatty's uh, incredible in the film, giving yeah. kind of a Stan Laurel performance. <laughs> yes. And, you know, there are a lot of individually funny scenes. The movie doesn't have the pace that it should have. I don't think Elaine May, which is weird to say because she did come up in 
radio it's like she doesn't have that pace mm -hmm. like the bob hope and bing crosby kind of like bam 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 mm -hmm. bam like so many jokes that if one doesn't hit another one's coming around the corner yeah i think we spend like maybe a little too much time with them in the desert yeah uh the humor is like so dry that sometimes it's almost imperceptible <laughs> yep um but you know the the chemistry between hoffman and Beatty is real mm -hmm. and you know they're very charming and i think the movie like has some very like sweet and touching things to say about creativity for its own sake and the joy of creating something with your friend even if what you're creating isn't all that good the important cinema club the important <laughs> cin I, I you know i did think about this podcast did while you? watching it and i also thought about you know there's that scene early in the movie when hoffman is on the ledge and Beatty comes out and says you know a lot of people wouldn't have somebody to come out here on a ledge for them yeah and Hoffman saying, you're probably so disappointed that I'm not the guy you thought I was. I'm not really talented. You know, I don't I don't have anything. And it makes you realize that you really do need like a lot of delusion to get through life. Mm -hmm. Like these guys on some level, they probably know they're not talented songwriters. And yet they tell themselves they're talented songwriters. And like you need to at some level, right? <laughs> I love how old they are in the movie, too, yes. where it's like they should not be doing this. Like they're way too old. For like yeah. basically doing like a Jim Carrey performance that would have been goofy and sweet mm. in another movie. And in Ishar, it's sweet, but it's like different. It's also very sad. It is very sad. But then like if they didn't have this, if they didn't have each other and they didn't have these songwriting ambitions, they would have nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, late in the movie, one of them says, you know, some people live lives of quiet desperation. Mm -hmm. They say this while they're in the desert, you know, struggling. <laughs> yeah. And they're right, frankly. Yep. You know? So you think it would be better to just get out there and suffer than just stay inward and suffer? Yeah. And that's like yeah. the lesson that At least they're type. pursuing their dreams, mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. just like us. <laughs>